Romans chapter 4. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Before we get into the message, just let me, let me just say I'm going to be open and frank and uh, reveal my heart to you at the moment. I just, just want you to know I appreciate your prayers. Uh, in my flesh, I am struggling with things. Uh, I don't know if it's a noisy soul or what, but uh, uh, as a shepherd, it's frustrating when sheep aren't here. Okay, I just want you to know that. When you're not here, I miss you. And I struggle with having a noisy soul. I know there is somebody who's legitimately gone today, but there are some here that should be here who sh- they're not. Okay, So please pray for me and pray for them. Uh, that, that causes uh, great heartache to me, and it makes it very difficult for me to even preach. Uh, I struggled today in my prayer time and my, my God and I time this morning and last night. So uh, that's, that it, it really affects me in a big way. So I just want you to know that. Uh, I am praying for you as well, those of you who are here, and I appreciate those of you who are here. It is a tremendous blessing, tremendous blessing to me, okay? So please pray for me, and pray for those who aren't here, and for yourselves and for one another. Romans chapter 4. Today we're going to look at justification by faith, and how that is evidenced in the Old Testament. Justification by faith evidenced in the Old Testament. Testament. Let me just start off by telling you that uh, in the old city of Geneva, Switzerland, there's a lovely park, and if you ever get to go to Europe, I hope you would try to go to Geneva, but uh, next to the University of Geneva, which, by the way, John Calvin started, uh, and and then also close to there, there's a a building, there's a church building where John Calvin actually preached and taught daily, but there's a park there that, that contains a, a lasting memorial to the 16th century Protestant Reformation. The central f- uh, feature there is a magnificent wall, and if I remember correctly, it's uh, about 33 feet tall. It's a huge, massive wall, and it has statues, uh, at least four statues, or more than four, but uh, the, the four big ones would be John Calvin, John Knox, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, Theodore Beza, and uh, Farrell, which is one of... John Calvin's friends, and then there's others there as well. But chiseled into the stone are the Latin words post tenebras, and I've given you some pictures there. Post tenebras lux. I'm not a Latin expert, okay, so I'm not sure exactly how you'd say that. But, it, but in English, what those Latin words mean is after darkness, light. After darkness, light. I'm giving you about three photos there, in fact. Wonderful statues they've done there. But these words, after darkness, light, really capture the driving force of the Reformation. The darkness referred to is the eclipse of the gospel that occurred in the Middle Ages, which is why some historians rightfully call that time period the Dark Ages. It was the Dark Ages because the gospel had been eclipsed for the most part. Gradual darkening of the gospel reached its lowest point in about the, the, to the, the 14 and 1500s, and the light of the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith alone was all but extinguished. 
There was a massive firestorm of the Reformation that was fueled by the most volatile issue ever debated in church history. And that's saying a lot because there were a lot of issues debated in church history throughout the centuries. Uh, For example, in the 4th and the 5th century, (laughs) that was a pretty volatile time as well, uh, they debated in, in, in church history in that time the nature of Christ. The very nature of Christ was debated. There was a lot at stake. Well, every generation throughout church history has debated various theological issues. Uh, There's doctrinal struggles and debates that have gone on through every century. But no doctrinal dispute has has been more contested, more fiercely, and with such long-term consequences as the one over the doctrine of justification, which is addressed in Romans chapter 4. In other words... Well, here, historians often describe justification as the material cause of the Reformation. In other words, what they're saying is it was just simply the core issue of the debate. Why, why, did, why were there protesters? By the way, that's what Protestant means. Protester. Why were there protesters against the church? Because the church was corrupt. The church... Uh, had, uh, had gone away from the faith, and so they were protesting. So that core issue of the debate was the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and it was this fragmentation of the church literally into thousands of in- individual denominations that it was, it was started at around that time period. Have you ever wondered why we have so many different kinds of churches and denominations today? Has it ever crossed your mind? Well, the roots can be traced back to this debate in Romans chapter 4 and other places in Scripture over the doctrine of justification. Lest you think Romans chapter 4 is some insignificant and unimportant passage of Scripture, let me correct your thinking on that, because it is incredibly significant. This is the one reason why it's important for, for us to study our passage for today from the book of Romans. But first, before we get into Romans 4, let me make sure you got the big picture. Let's just fly over the, the forest here before we start looking at individual trees, okay? We, we started looking in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. That gives us the introduction to the entire book. And in verse 17, you get the key verse of the entire book, that the just, how are you, how are you, how are you made just? It's by faith, by faith. And then we looked at chapter 1, verse 18, all the way, well, we didn't look at all those, but then going all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, we see that righteousness is defied. Mankind stands guilty because they defy God's righteousness. In chapter 1, we find that the Gentiles are guilty. Chapter 2, into chapter 3, the Jews are guilty. And then the end of chapter 3, we find that all of mankind stands guilty before a holy God. And then chapter 3, verse 21, we started looking at last week, we find that righteousness is supplied by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's all the way to chapter 5, verse 21. And then we're not going to look at this today, but in chapters 6 through 8, we see how righteousness is applied in the believer's life. Those who who have this right standing before God, who have Christ's righteousness, then must apply that righteousness to their lives. So that's, that's a little bit of the big picture of Romans. So let's, let's jump into chapter 4. Because in chapter 4 through 8, Paul explained how God's great plan of salvation was, com- was in complete harmony with the Old Testament scriptures. 
You say, is that, is that important? Yes, that's important because there are even some people today who think, and some people in Jesus' time and Paul's time who thought, well, you're saved differently in the Old Testament than you are in the New Testament. Are we? Are you saved any different today than Abraham was? Are you? Do you understand just how important that is? Well, Paul knew that uh, these, these were plaguing questions. And so he began first with the father of the Jewish nation, who is obviously Abraham. The Israelites looked up to Abraham. He, he's our father, Father Abraham. And so then Paul addresses this issue in Romans chapter 4, and he presents several irrefutable reasons why justification is by faith, and it's by faith alone. Now, I've used the big word a couple times. Let me, I, don't, I don't want to assume you understand what this word means. So since Romans talks a lot about justification by faith, we need to define it. I want to make sure we're all in the same boat here, okay? I like uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem's definition in his systematic theology book. Here's what he says, quote, Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Every single one of those words is vitally important. There was a lot of thought that went into every single one of those words and the particular order they come in. So I hope you take note of that. That is a great definition. It is a biblical definition. Because justification is something that happens instantaneous. It is, it is, it is a court term. And that's why he uses that word, legal act of God. God the Father is the one who does that for us. And so when he does that, he, he, are we still sinners? Yes, we're still sinners. But he thinks of our sins as forgiven. Just as a judge would say, you're not guilty. You are forgiven. But he sees Christ's righteousness belonging to us. And so then he declares us to be righteous in his sight because of Christ's righteousness. Well, I hope you can understand Paul's train of thought. Remember, chapter divisions are not inspired. So remember, chapter 4 carries on after chapter 3. So I hope you'll, you'll, you'll look at chapter 4 in light of chapter 3, because after reading chapter 3... The, the, the Jewish Christians who were located in, in the city of Rome would probably have immediately asked Paul, after listening to Romans chapter 3, they probably would ask something like this. How does this doctrine of justification by faith relate to our history? How does it relate to our history? And So Paul, you say that this doctrine is witnessed to by the law and the prophets. That's what Paul said in chapter 3. It's witnessed to by the law and the prophets. In other words, it's witnessed to by the Old Testament scriptures. And the Jews were probably thinking, well, well, what about Abraham then? He's the father of our nation. What about him? And so Paul addresses that very question. What about Abraham? So Paul accepted this challenge and he explained how Abraham was saved. Abraham was called our father referring primarily to the Jews' natural and physical descent from Abraham. But when we come to Romans chapter 4, verse 11, look at what it says there. Abraham is also called the father of who? Look at verse 11. 
He's the father of all them who believe. Or all of them that believe, whatever translation you're looking at. Which means that it's all who have trusted in Christ. Abraham's the father of all who trust in Christ. So Paul stated three important facts here in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham's salvation that prove his special experience or his spiritual experience was like that of all believers today. You say, well, how, how do I know if I'm saved? What, what's, what's involved with salvation? How do I know I'm going to heaven? You want to know how to get to heaven? Pay attention because you get to heaven the same way Abraham gets to heaven, same way he got to heaven. And we'll see that here in Romans chapter 4. And the first important fact about salvation that we see here is that justification, this legal act of God where he declares us innocent and to have Christ's righteousness to be forgiven, this justification is by faith, not works. By faith, not works. Look at Romans 4 verse 1. What shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Here, look at what Paul's doing in verse 3. Bringing up the question that I'm sure was in the minds of the Jews in Rome. And he's going to the authority of scripture. In fact, he's going to go to the Old Testament scriptures to show that salvation is, is through faith alone, in Christ alone, it, the same in the Old Testament as, in, as it is in the New. Look what he does. He brings the authority of Scripture here in verse 3. For what does the Scripture say? Now, if you have a Bible like mine, you notice the next two lines in your Bible, or three, are in italics. Do you see that? Do you have that? If your Bible does that, it's showing you that's an Old Testament quotation. I hope you find that very helpful. Here's the Old Testament quotation. It's coming from Genesis. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Again, notice verses 7 and 8. If your Bible's like mine, you see it in italics? You have it in italics there? Again, that's showing you that's an Old Testament quotation. And in fact, these are the words of David coming from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. Take note of this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Wonderful words, aren't they? What's Paul doing here? Paul's calling, in verses 1 through 8 here, he's calling forth two witnesses to prove that justification is by faith. The first witness that Paul calls to the stand is Moses. You say, Moses? I don't see his name here. Who wrote Genesis? Moses wrote Genesis, right? You see that quote at the end of verse 3. That is coming from Genesis 15, verse 6. And then the next witness that Paul calls to the stand is is King David. We see in verses 7 and 8. That's coming directly from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. In Romans chapter 4 here, verses 1 through 3, Paul examined the experience of Abraham as it's recorded in Genesis chapter 15. 
Why is he doing that? To show that justification is by faith in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. Abraham, what did he do? In Genesis 14, Abraham had defeated those kings in Genesis 14, and, and he was wondering if, if they would return to fight again. And so, you know, here, here's, you know, Abraham. Imagine little old Abraham. He's not some big nation. And he was fighting all these kings who had big armies. And he's just him little, you know, him and his servants. So you can understand Abraham's concern there in Genesis 14. So he's wondering if these, return, these kings are going to come back and fight again. So what did God do? God, in, in, verse, in chapter 15, appears to Abraham and assured him that he was his shield and great reward. But the thing that Abraham wanted most was a son and an heir. Abraham's getting old. He didn't have a son. He didn't have an heir. So he was concerned about that. And God had promised him a son earlier on. Remember, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham, the father of many nations. <laughs> Can you imagine what people thought of that? You, by the way, if your name was Abraham and you didn't have children, you wouldn't want to go around telling people your name. Hi, uh, my name's Abraham. And, and, then, and then immediately people will start laughing at you. Ha! Yeah, right. You're, you're the father of many nations? You don't even have any children. Where'd you get that name from? That's what they probably would have done. So God had promised him a son, but, but as yet the promise hadn't been fulfilled. And so it was then that God told him to look at the stars in chapter 15. And God said, so shall your seed or your descendants be. Whoa. My descendants are going to be like all those stars? Cool. When's that going to happen? <laughs> so God promised. And Abraham, what did he do? Abraham believed God's promise, the Bible says. The Hebrew word translated believe, by the way, means to say Amen. Amen. So when you say amen, and you should often do that, when somebody says something that's true, you're saying, hey, you believe. You believe that what someone said is true. And so God gave a promise, and how did Abraham respond? He responded by saying, amen. And it was this faith that was counted to him for righteousness, the Bible says. So that's what the Bible's talking about here in Romans 4. It's referring back to Genesis 15. Now, that word counted in Romans 4, verse 3, as you see there, or it was accounted in, in the new KJV, a Greek word that means to put to one's account. To put to one's account. It's, it's a banking term. Do you do this? I think you do, right? Those of you who have a job, sometimes you have your, your boss just has, you know, does a direct deposit or an electronic deposit from his bank to your bank. That's the idea here. Or, or when, you, when you, you, know, you put a check, you know, that check, even though it's just a little piece of paper, it actually means more than just the paper, right? It, something is being deposited to your bank account. That is the idea here. That his faith was, was put into Abraham's bank account, the bank account of heaven, if you will. It's a banking term. And this word, by the way, is used 11 times in this chapter alone, and it's, it's translated in various ways. Uh, such as reckoned, imputed, or accounted, or counted. Very important word, obviously. Something that's, that's showing up 11 times is telling you, hey, sit up, take notice of me, I'm important. That's what it's telling you. And so when a man works, what happens? 
The Bible uses this illustration here of somebody working. Did you notice that, in verse, starting in verse 4? When someone works, what happens? Uh, you earn a salary, and this money is, is put to your account, if, as long as you're not uh, you know, doing a bartering or something like that. But Abraham did not work for his salvation, and that's one of the points here. He didn't work for his salvation. He simply trusted God's word, didn't he? He trusted in God's promise. It was Jesus Christ who did the work on the cross for Abraham, and then it was Christ's righteousness that was put to Abraham's account. And so it's using that illustration of working and receiving a salary into your bank account to show us what happens in regards to our salvation. I hope that that helps. Now look at Romans 4, verse 5, because this verse makes a startling statement. In Romans 4, verse 5, it says, God justifies the ungodly. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, you ought to sit up and take notice and and scratch your head and shake your head and, and be thinking, what? God justifies the ungodly? You think about this. In Exodus 23, verse 7, the law said, Here's what the law says. God said, I will not justify the wicked. So, God's not the author of confusion, according to 1 Corinthians 14. So how does that match up with Romans 4? Okay. God says, I will not justify the wicked. But in Romans 4, 5, he says, God justifies the ungodly. Do, do you see a disconnect there at all? You ought to be asking yourself, why is this so? How? Why? Why? The answer is because there are no godly for God to justify. (laughs) There are no godly people for God to justify. When God declares you innocent and to have Christ's righteousness, it's not because you're good. It's not because you are good or innocent. No, it's because you are ungodly. So what does he do? He puts our sin on Christ's account that he might put Christ's righteousness on our account. So it's like, it's like you having this huge bank account in the red. Okay? Here's your bank account. It's in the red. You've know, you, you got billions and trillions of dollars you owe that you can never, ever repay. That's your bank account. And then here's this other bank account with trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And this person's bank account then gets switched to yours. And then this person over here who is rich takes it, all your debt and pays it and puts it over here in his bank account. That's exactly what Christ and God the Father did for you and for me. He takes the debt that you and I can never repay and puts it on his account. In fact, it was placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. And then you receive something you do not deserve, which is Christ's righteousness. In Romans 4, verses 6 through 8 here, Paul used David as a witness, and he's quoting from one of David's psalms of confession in Psalm 32 after his terrible sin with Bathsheba. That's, that's the context of Psalm 32 in which David is writing. He's, he's sinned against a holy God. He's offended a holy God. He deserves God's wrath. But David makes two amazing statements here. Number one, I've, I think I put it on the screen here for you. First of all, God forgives sins and then imputes righteousness apart from works. So David is is just another example of of what God does for us. And then number two, God does not impute our sins. He doesn't impute our sins. He imputes Christ's righteousness to those who believe by faith. 
In other words, once we are justified, once we are declared righteous, our record contains Christ's perfect righteousness. And you know what? It will never again contain our sins. Never. Your sin was laid on Christ at the cross. And so if you're a believer, when you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, your sin will never be brought up again. Let me just say something here real quick, because I have heard preachers preach incredibly emotional sermons saying that when you get to heaven, God's going to have a PowerPoint presentation, and he's going to show everybody in heaven and all the angels all the things you've ever thought and ever done. Really? Have you ever heard anyone preach like that? That's wrong. That, that is utterly wrong. People in heaven are not going to see all of the sins that you've ever thought and you've ever done and you've ever said. Those sins were nailed to the cross. You have Christ's righteousness if you have been justified. That's the point in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8. Well, I think at this point an illustration will serve you well. In case you're, you're not quite with me and you're not quite with the Word of God here, let me, let me help you out. Several years ago... It's very interesting. There was a, I heard, a story I heard about. There was a wealthy English businessman who purchased a Rolls Royce. You all know what Rolls Royce is? It's a car. And it's not just a car. It is an incredibly expensive car. In fact, they cost over $100,000, okay? They're really, really plush, uh, flash cars, okay? Well, anyway, soon after he bought his car, he took his car over to France. And while he was in France, this... Very expensive Rolls-Royce car broke down. Well, it breaks down, so he phones up the Rolls-Royce people back in Britain. And you know what they did? They, they back up their products so much, they, uh, this manufacturer of the Rolls-Royce actually flew a mechanic from England over to France to fix this guy's car. <laughs> and the guy was so impressed with this wonderful service, but... After the, you know, you think about this, this wonderful service uh, surely must come with a very hefty price tag, right? You would think so. So he, anyway, after months uh, passed, he didn't receive any of invoice in the, in the mail. And so what he did is he, he wrote the Rolls-Royce company. He's, he's wondering, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Rolls-Royce company, uh, can I have my account provided to me, please? So he asked for his account provided to him. And then by return mail, he received a very courteous note from the Rolls-Royce company assuring him that they had no record of anything having gone wrong with his car. (laughs) In other words, that was a very nice way. The Rolls-Royce company refused to acknowledge that any imperfection exists in their product. Do you understand? And that is, by the way, a great illustration of what exactly happened to David in a spiritual sense. David never owned a Rolls Royce, okay? Uh, so the, the illustration breaks down a bit there. But in a spiritual sense, that's what happened. He says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. And so when God forgives sins, you know what he does? When God forgives your sin, he just he blots out the record. Even though there's this huge bill that the company had to pay for to fly the mechanic to France and back, that was very expensive. But on this guy's record, it never showed up. That's exactly what God has done for us in a spiritual sense. So praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord. He blots out the record. The second important fact about salvation that we see here in Romans 4 is that justification is by God's grace, not law. Justification is by God's grace, not law. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, by what uncircumcised? And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who are also walking in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. Notice it's not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him who believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. (laughs) So I hope it's obvious by that passage that justification is by God's grace. It is not by law. Now, as we've seen, the Jews gloried in circumcision in the law, did they not? They thought that was really important. So if a Jew was to become righteous before God... He firmly believed and practiced that he had, to circum- he had to be circumcised and he had to obey the law to please God. That's what the Jews believed. And Paul, by the way, had already made it clear in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29, that there must be an inward obedience to the law. If you're not familiar with that passage, read that this afternoon. He said also that there is a circumcision of the heart. Paul was more concerned about the circumcision of the heart than of the body. Circumcision of the heart is what saves somebody, not a physical circumcision, not a keeping of the law outwardly, but keeping of the law inwardly is what saves someone. So the point is that mere external observance can never save you. Just a mere external keeping of anything cannot save you. That's the point that Paul's making. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, do you ever do anything external? Thinking, hey, this is going to you know, make me pleasing in God's sight? Do you? We do. We do. Maybe not necessarily on purpose sometimes, but I think some, at least unconsciously we do. Maybe sometimes on purpose. Sometimes we feel guilty. Hey, you know, I didn't have my quiet time with God this morning. Uh, so... Uh, 
you know, God might, might look at me in a displeasing way, so I better have my quiet time with God and, and pray so that I'll be pleasing to God. Do you see the point? Do you see what you're doing when you do that? Are you justified or not? Can you have any more of Christ's righteousness by reading your Bible and praying than not, by not? No. Your sin is covered. It's blotted out. So don't think for one moment that you can do anything external like reading your Bible or praying or witnessing or giving money to a church or you know, any of those sort of things. Those things aren't going to make you any more right with God as far as your standing in, in regards to salvation is concerned. Do you see that? But we, we tend to think that way, though, don't we? We try to do things, right? We think we have to do something. No, you don't have to do anything. Christ has already done it. Christ has done it. So it's not external, okay? That's the point. No external observance can ever save you. So then how was Abraham declared righteous then? Well, he was declared, uh, declared righteous when he was in this state of uncircumcision. Now the Jews, they thought, oh, this is really important. And, and Paul is using this to show them no, he was declared righteous before God before he was ever circumcised. And so from the Jewish point of view, Abraham was a Gentile. Ooh, that's bad. Abraham, what, what is he? He's 99 years old when he's eventually circumcised according to Genesis chapter 17. He's 99. Now this was more than 14 years, by the way, after the events that happened in Genesis 15. So what is the conclusion then? Well, the conclusion is that circumcision had nothing to do with the justification. That's the point. Had absolutely these works that, that so many Jews were trusting in for their salvation meant nothing. Not by works, by grace. Well, then, the Jews who are listening to Romans preach to them or, or read to them were probably thinking, well, what's the point of circumcision then? Then why was circumcision given? Well, Romans 4, verse 11. Look at verse 11, says it was a sign and a seal. It's a sign and a seal. What does that mean? Well, as a sign, it was evidence that this individual who was circumcised belonged to God and that, he had, he had, he had given the, uh, that God had given the promise and would keep the promise. Now, believers today, we're not, we're not sealed by circumcision, are we? You understand that? You're not sealed by circumcision, right? I, I, hope, you, I hope you believe that. How are we sealed, according to the Bible? Well, read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's how you're sealed. Well, they also have experienced a spiritual circumcision in the heart, according to Colossians chapter 2. This is not just some minor physical operation going on here in Colossians chapter 2. But this is, in Colossians chapter 2, it's talking about putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Getting rid of that old nature through the death and the resurrection of Christ and putting on Christ. And so circumcision did not add to Abraham's salvation, but what did it do then? It was just a sign, right? It was, it was something that was demonstrating his righteousness, if you will, his salvation. But Abraham, it says there, was also justified before the law was even given. That's important. Because 
A lot of people look to the law, and even today, even Christians think, hey, i got to do something to please God. No, you don't. And so this fact Paul discusses here in Romans 4, verses 13 through 17, the key word in those verses is promise. Promise. Okay? Underline the word promise in your Bible there in, those, in that passage. Underline it. That is so important there. Because Abraham was justified by believing what? Now here, take note of this, my friends. The object of your faith is important. What is the object of your faith? What are you trusting in? What is the object of your faith? Because some people today, and there's heaps of books out there, you can go in a Christian bookstore and find them, not ours, but others. Oh, they'll say, you know, just have faith. Oh, really? In what? In what? That's my question. Faith in what? If your faith is in anything other than Christ and in him alone, then it's, it's, a, it's a weak faith. It's a damning faith. The Bible says that Abraham was justified by believing God's promise, not by obeying God's law. I mean, think about this. What comes first? Again, we think chronologically. Okay? Abraham's justified even before he was circumcised. Okay? Now, let's also think about it in relation to the law. What came first? Abraham or the law? Do you know your, your Old Testament chronology? What comes first, Abraham or the law? Abraham came first, right? We're talk, you were talking at the beginning of Genesis, Abraham's there. Moses was used of God to write the law. When did that come? Well, that, that doesn't even come to Exodus, right? So obviously, Abraham chronologically comes first. He's before the law. Pardon? Yeah, law, hundreds of years. Hundreds of years before the law was even given, but yet Abraham was declared righteous by faith. He didn't earn it. He didn't merit it. It wasn't because he was some wonderful person. Who is Abraham? By the way, who is Abram when he was back in Ur of Chaldees? Think of the Chaldees. You know what it was like back in Abraham's, Abram's day? Those were, that was a pagan society. They were idolaters. They were not God worshipers. So it wasn't, God's not looking down from heaven and sees Abram and say, oh, he's a wonderful person. I'm going to make him the father of many nations. And he's declared righteous because he's such a good person. He's got this spark of divinity within him. No, not at all. That's not why he picked Abram. It was just simply because of God's grace. He chose someone who didn't merit his grace and didn't earn it. So today, what does God do? He does the same. God justifies the ungodly because of why? Because of his gracious promise. Not because we obey his law. That's not why he doesn't. Romans 4, 4 verse 15 talks about the law was not given to save men, but to show men that they need to be saved. So that's why the law was given. To show us that we can't keep it, so we need the one who has kept it. And so the fact that Abraham was justified by grace and not law, what does it do? It proves that salvation is for everyone. Any, any people, tongue, nation, tribe, can anyone within those tribes or people or groups can be saved. Abraham is the father of all believers, whether they are Jew or Gentile, according to Romans 4, verse 16. Look at... Uh, 
Paul made an interesting, uh, sorry, it wasn't Paul who said this, but anyway, he's quoting from Genesis 17, verse 5. He says, I have made you a father of many nations. That's God keeping his unconditional promise of Genesis chapter 12. Well, let's look at the third and last important fact of salvation. How are how are how was Abraham saved? How are people in the Old Testament saved? How are people in the New Testament saved? How are you saved? How do you get to heaven? Well, you want to know? Here it is, verses eighteen through twenty-five. Justification is by God's power, not human effort. Justification is by God's power, not human effort. Look at verse eighteen. Verse eighteen: Who, contrary to hope, in hope believed? So that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, in other words, what's it there for? What is that there for? As a result of what we just read about, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Praise God, it's for us as well. Not just for the Jew, not just for Abraham. It's for us as well. Look at verse 24. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And thus ends chapter 4. And you notice chapter 5 starts with a therefore. So we'll leave that for another time. But these verses are really an expansion of one phrase in verse 17. Take note of verse 17. There's a phrase in verse 17 that says something like this, that God gives life to the dead. God gives life to the dead. In other words, those who are totally unable to save themselves, there's a total inability here for you to save yourself through human effort. And so so verses 18 through 24 are an expansion of of that that very phrase. And so Paul saw the rejuvenating of Abraham's body as, as a great picture, if you will, of what happens to someone in resurrection. And then what did he do? He related that to the resurrection of Christ. Now one reason why God delayed in sending Abraham and Sarah a son, I think, was to permit all of their natural strength to to decline, and then it disappeared, and and then they, they finally came to a point where everyone realizes, I mean, you're almost 100 years old, you can't have children, right? That's, that's the natural way to think when you're 100 years old. And so it was unthinkable that a man who was 99 years old could produce a child in the womb of his wife, who, by the way, she was 89 years old. So in order for them to have a, have a child, to have Isaac, what had to happen? A miracle had to happen, and it did. So from a reproductive point of view, here they are. They're both dead. And so God is using this illustration of their bodies reproductively dead to show how we are spiritually. Spiritually, we're dead. Which is the point that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is making. 
we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But Abraham didn't walk by sight, did he? He didn't walk by sight. How did he walk? He walked by faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 says you can't please God without faith. So what God promised, he performed. And then all we need to do is believe God's promises, don't we? So Abraham's initial faith in God is recorded in Genesis chapter five or 15. It didn't diminish over those years that followed. And then in Genesis 17 and 18, the Bible says that Abraham was strong in faith. Now that's amazing. Because Abraham didn't have the Bible, but it says that he was strong in faith. And it was this faith that gave him strength to produce a son in his old age. So what's the application for us? The application to salvation is clear. Okay, listen closely. Are you listening? That God must wait until the sinner is dead and unable to save himself before he can release his saving power. You don't get saved any other way. You don't get saved after you bring some life to yourself. <laughs> that never happens. God regenerates the one who is dead. And that's the point. That is the point of this passage. So as long as the lost sinner thinks he is strong enough to do anything to please God, that there is some effort that, that we can do to save ourselves, God is not going to save us. And Jesus talked about that as well in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5. You know what the first Beatitude is? You have to be poor in spirit. In other words, the first element of true saving faith, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, is you have to come to him empty-handed, recognizing you have nothing to offer him except your sin. That's it. And that's the wonderful truth of the song Rock of Ages, Naked I Come. Naked I Come, expecting to receive the white robes of Christ's righteousness. So it is when the lost sinner confesses that he is spiritually dead and unable to save himself, then God saves us. <laughs> well, have, my question to you, my friends, is have you ever come to that point? Have you ever come to a point where you died to yourself? Do you realize that you were totally unable to save yourself? Do you? Have you come to that point? Or is there some some crutch in the back of your mind and in your heart. You're still grasping onto this crutch of human effort. Are you? Drop the crutch, my friend. Drop it. It will not save you. It cannot save you. You must come poor in spirit. Empty-handed before God, recognizing you have nothing to offer Him. Well, let's examine these verses closely to see several characteristics of God-given faith here. Several characteristics of God-given faith. I'm just going to simply throw them out to you. These are interesting when you think of them in, in verses 18 through 21. First of all, God-given faith believes when there is absolutely no basis for hope. What does verse 18 say? Who, talking about Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed. So, he believed when there was absolutely no basis for hope. I mean, think about it. He's 99 years old. How in the world, humanly speaking, can, God give, can, can he reproduce and have any children at 99 years old? Humanly speaking, it's impossible. But he hoped. Number two, God-given faith does not allow doubt to cloud and undermine belief. Look at verse 19. 
It says, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, though he was already dead, since he was about 100 years old. In other words, he's taking his eyes off himself, if you will, and he's looking at the one who gives hope. The problem is, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we get ourselves into trouble when we start listening to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. Do you understand that? (laughs) That is one of the greatest things that's been very, very helpful to me. The reason we have noisy souls is we listen to ourselves, talk to ourselves too much. We get noisy souls in the process. And instead of preaching the gospel to ourselves. So my friend, the application is simple. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. God-given faith does not allow doubt to cloud and undermine belief. Verse 19b also says God-given faith is strong and unwavering despite physical weaknesses. Was Sarah physically weak? Was she unable to have children? Yes. Look at the end of verse 19. Uh, Sorry, I'm thinking of Abraham's body. He did not consider his own body, although he was already dead. (laughs) You say, well, it's hopeless. No, it's not hopeless. When you have God on your side, it's never hopeless. But God-given faith, number four, does not doubt God's promise despite circumstances. Now here's where Sarah comes into the picture because her womb was dead. Well, physically speaking, her womb was dead, right? She's 89 years old. She can't have children, physically speaking, but she did. God opened her womb and gave her life. Number five, God-given faith does not vacillate between trust and doubt. God-given faith is solid. It's not flipping back and forth. You know, at one moment you have faith, another you have unbelief. No, look at verse 20. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief. No, that's the way God-given faith is. And number six, God-given faith gives glory to God. Because verse 20 says, He was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. That's one one way you can recognize a God-given faith as opposed to someone who's trusting in themselves. Because the one who's trusting in themselves is going to, they're going to take the glory. God says, I will not give my glory to another. And the last one is in verse 21, that God-given faith is complete. Being fully, I love that word, fully. It's complete. Fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. God doesn't leave anything out. He is sufficient, and he gives his grace to us. His grace is sufficient. So the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1, 16 says. Why? Why is God's, the power of God, uh, uh, the gospel, why is it the power of God unto salvation? It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Romans 4, verse 24 talks about that. And by the way, that's paralleled with Romans 10. Remember what Romans 10 talks about? Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. What do you confess? Confess your mouth the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead. So there's a parallel in Romans 10. A literal translation of Romans 4.25 could read something like this. 
that Jesus Christ was delivered up to die on account of our offenses and was raised up because of our justification. That's another way of saying verse 24. So what does this mean then? Well, this means that the resurrection of Christ is the proof that God accepted his son's sacrifice. If Jesus had stayed in the tomb, it means that God the Father looked at Christ's sacrifice and said, not good enough. But praise God, Christ did rise from the tomb, didn't he? He arose. And so that is proof that God accepted his son's sacrifice and that now sinners like you and me can be justified without violating God's own law or contradicting his nature. God's justice is met. It's the, the wrath is demanded there. The ESV study Bible puts it this way. This might be helpful to you. Quote, when God the Father raised Christ from the dead, it was a demonstration that he accepted Christ's suffering and death as full payment for sin. And that the Father's favor was directed toward Christ and through Christ toward those who believe. Since Paul sees Christians as united with Christ in his death and resurrection... God's approval of Christ at the resurrection results in God's approval also of all who are united to Christ and in this way results in their justification. Here's the point. God raised Christ from the dead. He accepted the sacrifice that Christ made. Death was conquered. And for that, you can look to that. You can look to Christ. The Father sees the satisfaction was made, that his wrath was absorbed in his son, so you don't receive his wrath. Instead, you receive Christ's righteousness. And the resurrection is the proof of that. It's that demonstration. So the key, of course, here in Romans 4.24 is, is those words, if we believe, if we believe. Now, there's over 60 references to faith or, un- or unbelief in Romans. Do you think it's important? Absolutely. Romans 1.16 says that God's saving power is experienced by those who believe in Christ. That's one of the key verses of the entire book of Romans. And then Romans 3.22 says that Christ's righteousness is given to those who believe. Romans 5.1 says that we are justified by faith. So what is the object of your faith? Again, you need to be reminded of this. Your faith is only as good as your object By the way, think about this. When you came and sat down this morning, did any of you check to make sure all the bolts and screws and everything on your chair was secure before you sat down? Did any of you do that? You had faith, didn't you, in that chair to support you. I didn't see anybody get on their hands and knees and look underneath your chair and say, oh, I'm wondering, I'm I'm not quite sure about this chair. Any of you do that? Or any of you this morning, you, you go outside to your vehicle and you pull off the hubcaps to make sure all the lug nuts are still there. Did you do that? What if somebody took all your lug nuts off and then put the hubcap back on? Aaron works at a tire shop. What's going to happen? Your wheel's going to fall off. Your tire's going to fall off, right? Did any of you go out there and check it to make sure it's all safe and secure? Or did you trust that everything was okay? You did, probably, most likely. What is your faith in when you do that? Your faith in that tire, right? in your vehicle, or the chair. But you think about it, in light of eternity, your faith in a chair or a tire or a vehicle is not very solid, is it? 
but we, we, we often trust things. We have faith in things. We, do, we don't really think about it. We take it for granted. But what is your faith in in regards to your eternal security? Into salvation. <laughs> it has to be in Christ and in Christ alone. Well, the Bible says Abraham is the father of all of us who believe on Jesus Christ. So if you're a Gentile, guess what? You can never be a Jew. <laughs> you can never become a Hebrew if you're a Gentile. You'll never be a natural descendant of Abraham. But I got good news for you. You could be a spiritual descendant of Abraham. That's the point here of Romans 4. Are you a spiritual descendant of Abraham? In chapter 4, Paul presented several irrefutable reasons why justification has to be through faith. It has to be. Let me just repeat these to you. Number one, since justification is a gift, it cannot be earned by works. Number two, since Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, circumcision has no relationship to justification. Number three, since Abraham was justified centuries before the law, justification is not based on the law. And the last one, Abraham was justified because of his faith in God, not because of his works. So, we look at Abraham, and we can glean a lot of truth from Abraham's life in regards to our own salvation. Because guess what, my friends? You get to heaven the same way Abraham got to heaven. It's the same way. People in the Old Testament are saved the same way you're saved. The only difference is, in the Old Testament... Their faith looks forward to Jesus Christ. Whereas now, our faith looks back to the finished work of Christ. That's the only difference. So what have we seen in this chapter then? We've seen there's two ways that are compared, that are contrasted here, right? Two ways, if you will. The first way is salvation by trying. (laughs) A lot of people do that, don't they? Probably most of our world is doing that, aren't they? Salvation by trying through human effort. They try to be pleasing to God. And so they they think of God as having these huge, huge scales up in heaven somehow, hoping their good works will outweigh the bad works. So that's salvation by trying. But the the second way is salvation by trusting. Which one are you doing? Is your salvation by trying or salvation by trusting? Well, what Abraham found and what David found in Romans 4 here and what Paul found in Romans and other portions of Scripture and what we must find as well is that salvation is by faith and it is by faith alone. It's not by faith plus my works. It's not faith, Jesus Christ, grace, and doing all sorts of good things. No, it's faith alone. So may God help us to believe in this truth of justification by faith alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful, so, so thankful for your grace that you save undeserving sinners like Abraham and like me and others in this room as well who have not merited your grace. We have not earned it. There is no spark of divinity within any one of us. We are totally unable to save ourselves, we are dead. We're thankful for the finished work of Christ. We're thankful for looking at the finished work of Christ, and you were satisfied by that. We're thankful that you brought Christ back from the dead. 
that you conquered death, you conquered sin, you conquered the works of the devil. We praise you for that, and we can look forward to ongoing sanctification in our lives, and we ultimately look forward to glorification when the power and that, that remnant, the roots of sin, will, will be utterly gone. Father, I pray that my friends here in this room would not for one moment be trusting in a crutch of human effort. May they not look to their parents' salvation. May they not look to church membership. May they not look to their baptism. May they not look to their good works. May they not to look, may they not look to you know, anything other than their faith in Christ alone to save them. Please open their eyes. May they see that human effort, the law, any right, any works, that all these things are insufficient. Don't even come close. Father, we ask that you would grant us illumination. Open our eyes to behold wonderful truths from your word here. May we understand why the Reformation happened. Why the Dark Ages happened. And why, once again, we have have come into the dark ages. The world is so dark. But we're thankful for the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ, who shines in the heart of all who believe, all who have faith. So, Father, may we shine forth as lights. May we not be hiding that light under a bushel. May we understand the gospel. May we preach the gospel to ourselves. Tell the gospel to a dark world. May we be encouraged by the gospel, recognizing that it is your power to all who believe. It is through Christ. It is powerful, sufficient for salvation to all who believe. May we all believe and continue to believe, continue to preach this wonderful truth to ourselves. The justification, this right standing, only comes through faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.